I look for colleagues to join with me in introducing a bill to uh, outlaw cryptocurrency uh, uh, owner, uh, purchases by Americans so that we nip this in the bud, in part because not uh, an awful lot of our international power comes from the fact that the dollar is the standard unit of international uh, finance and transactions. Clearing through the New York Fed is critical for major oil, oil and other transactions. And it is the announced purpose of the supporters of cryptocurrency to take that power away from us, to put us in a position where the most significant sanctions we have on Iran, for example, would become uh, irrelevant. So whether it is to disempower our foreign policy, our tax collection uh, enforcement, or our law, traditional law enforcement, the purposes of cryptocurrency, the advantage it has over uh, uh, sovereign currency is solely uh, to aid in the disempowerment of, uh, of uh, the United States and the rule of law. But ironically, uh, if not surprisingly, it is precisely the United States which claims that it is so the solution to the quest uh, for peace. The reason for this claim is the so-called doctrine of democratic peace, which goes back to the days of Woodrow Wilson and World War I and has been revived in recent years by George Bush and his neoconservative advisors. Now, this theory of democratic peace claims the following. First, democracies do not go to war against each other. Second, hence, in order to create lasting peace, the entire world must be made democratic. And, as a largely unstated corollary, three, today, many states are not democratic and resist internal democratic reform. And fourth, hence, war must be waged on those states in order to convert them to democracy and thus create lasting peace. Now, I do not have the patience for a full critique of the theory, um, but I shall provide a brief critique, at least of the theory's premise, and of its final conclusion. First thing, do democracies not go to war against each other? Now, since almost no democracies existed before the 20th century, uh, the answer must obviously be found within the last hundred years or so. And in fact, the bulk of the evidence that is offered in favor of the thesis is that the countries of Western Europe have not gone to war against each other uh, in the post-World War II era. Likewise, in the Pacific region, Japan and South Korea have not warred against each other. Now, does this evidence prove the case? Um, now, the democratic peace theorists obviously think so. Um, as they see it, there are plenty of cases on which they can build their case. Germany did not war against France, Italy, and England. France did not war against Spain, Italy, and Belgium. And moreover, there are permutations involved also. Germany did not attack France, and France did not attack Germany. Um, thus, we have seemingly dozens of confirmations, and not a single counterexample for more than 60 years, but do we really have that? And the answer is, of course, no. Uh, what we actually have is no more than one single case. 
uh, with the end of World War II, all of Western Europe and Japan and Korea in the Pacific region became part of the United States Empire, as is indicated by the presence of United States troops practically everywhere in these countries. Now, what the post-World War II period of peace then proves is not that democracies do not go to war against each other, but that an imperialist power such as the United States did not let its various colonial parts go to war against each other. You also did not see, by the way, any wars breaking out between all those countries that were dominated by the Soviet Union as long as the Soviet Empire existed, from which we also do not draw the conclusion that communist dictatorships under Russian control do not go to war against each other, so because of that we have to introduce something like this. Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pierre Rochard, with my other co-host, Michael Goldstein, a.k.a. Bitstein. How's it going, Michael? It's going well. I just hope they don't ban Bitcoin. Yeah, any day now. I hope they do. And we have a very special guest on today, Andrew Polstra from Blockstream. Andrew, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Great. Uh, Did did you hear today's news about the uh, representative in Congress who wanted to ban cryptocurrencies? Oh, I heard a bunch of jokes about it. I didn't okay. see. I'm not on Twitter, so I don't get these jokes. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. So they've been they've been flooding in because uh, yeah, this this Democratic lawmaker from California. Uh, what I found interesting was his reasoning, which was that uh, these cryptocurrencies, their avowed purpose is to undermine fiat currencies and to you know reduce the foreign policy advantage of having a U.S. dollar reserve as kind of the global standard of value but in any case that's not why we're, we're having you on though but if you have thoughts about that we'd be interested in hearing them it's cool it's been a while since we've heard that from from lawmakers i feel like in the early days there was a lot of that and then they sort of clued in that there was not actually anything to shut down or anybody to arrest and then they just, quieted down but i just like how honest they are about uh the nature of the fed you know, we've gone from Ron Paul being a conspiracy theorist bringing up the Federal Reserve to uh, a, a sitting congressman announcing to the world that the purpose of the Federal Reserve is to act as this, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, institution for manipulating a currency for the purposes of foreign policy goals. Well, what's really fun is now we have congressmen making conspiracy theories about us. So that's a nice stuff. <laughs> Well, and, and you know, just in time, we bring on uh, someone from the, uh, the the reptilian crew itself. Oh, that's right. To talk to talk about the conspiracies you guys have been working on. Yep. So I I wanted to bring you on um, because of uh, conversations we were having at at a, a little Austin uh, meetup where you're telling me about um, work that was being done on Miniscript. Um, I think you could you know, rehash uh, to me, but also to the listeners uh, about what Miniscript is and uh, what it, what it um, you know, allows. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I am super excited about this thing called Miniscript. So let me give 
a bit of context for, so probably everybody listening to this podcast is familiar a little bit that with Bitcoin script, or at least that Bitcoin script is a thing that exists. Um, so what Bitcoin script is, is it's a language that is used in Bitcoin. There's an interpreter that Bitcoin validators uh, run. So they see this sort of bytecode on every single Bitcoin transaction. And the way that coins ownership is assigned, we usually think about it as being assigned based on private keys and our, the ownership of private keys corresponding to public keys and, and all the coins have some sort of public key associated to them. What's actually happening is a tiny bit more complicated. There's a script that every um, coin has associated to it. And that script is doing something very simple. It's saying, here's a public key that's embedded in the script. Give me a signature that signs a transaction and that validates using this public key. So there's like one step of abstraction above having just a public key and a signature. That's the script requesting the signature. And the benefit of this is that you can do all sorts of cool, uh, much more complicated spend spending policies because Bitcoin script supports much more than just asking for signatures. You can do the simplest example is something like a multi-signature or a threshold signature where you have like 10 public keys and you say, I want a signature with many six of these 10. And this way you can have like consortiums of people controlling coins. Um, and this is used a lot in practice, in particular the, the two of three signatures used a lot. This is used in like a standard escrow construction where you have two counterparties and an escrow agent and any two of them are able to sign to move the coins. This is also used by companies like BitGo who act as countersigners to uh, other businesses' transactions. And companies like Green, Blockstream's Green, is a wallet that does something similar for ordinary users, where the idea is that the service will countersign any transaction. So ordinarily you spend, um, you as a user of one of these services will spend these coins and you need to ask the service to countersign for you. And the idea is that if somebody hacks you or something, you can call up the countersigner and say like, please stop. Um, but this is actually a two of three. And there's a third key that is in like cold storage somewhere. So that if the service goes under or if they become malicious or if somehow you don't trust them, you uh, you can just go un unfreeze this cold key and then now you have two keys and you can use those to sign. And so that's one example of what Bitcoin script can do. It can do multi-signatures. It can also request hash pre-images. This is something that's used in Lightning. The way that Lightning payment channels are linked together to form these complicated paths like hop, hop, hop is that one party at the end of a path in order to take their coins actually reveals the pre-image to some hash, some secret that everybody agrees um, agrees on. They reveal this secret and that allows them to take their coins. The next person in the hop copies a secret off the blockchain or actually copies a secret off the copy of the transactions that people are passing around. But, but uh, you can imagine this being published to the blockchain. You copy the secret off the blockchain and then you use that to take your coins. The next party in the hop takes the same secret. And so everybody sort of pulls the coins along. Um, they see the secret being revealed in the blockchain. And Bitcoin script enables this. The point of supporting this in script is that you can actually use the blockchain to enforce that the secret is published and that the right secret is published. And then the third sort of big category of things that Bitcoin script supports is these things called time locks, where you can say that coins are not allowed to move until some certain amount of time has passed. And then finally, you can like compose these in various ways. You can have like, say like this set of signers or a certain amount of time goes by and then this set of signers signs. You can have like backups and, or emergency clauses in your transactions where you, uh, you have kind of a happy path where multiple people are signing. But if somehow those people can't come to agreement, 
after a while, you get this unhappy path that isn't allowed to be used. And the truth is not a lot of people are using these in any creative ways. There are sort of a couple templated special purpose uh, instances of this that are used, like Bitcoin Core supports ordinary, like the kind of addresses you and I think about where there's a single public key that somebody signs. It also supports like multi-signatures um, and a couple other fairly special cases. And then you have something like BitGo's service, which requires this multi-signing, or Blockstream's Liquid, which has this giant 11 of 15 multi-signature thing going on with an emergency uh, like time-locked backup clause. And all of these services have their own individual ad hoc code that is handling this particular Bitcoin script. And it's figuring out how to arrange the signatures for this particular Bitcoin script. And so even though we have this very general thing, this, uh, this script system that can do all sorts of complicated things, in fact, what people actually do is they find something very specific script that they write out. They manually verify um, that the script makes sense. They manually write a bunch of code that form the specific script. And the result is like, it's basically like a bunch of fixed templates. And the reason for this, this is now I'm finally going to get into what Miniscript is here. The reason that the situation is so like primitive and clumsy is that it's actually really hard to reason about Bitcoin script. So Bitcoin script was designed with um, like analyzability or ease of reasoning uh, in mind. And you can see this in the, the facts that Bitcoin, that script does not have like unbounded loops. It does not have like go-tos. It does not have like unbounded, like various forms of unbounded computation just are not part of script. And the reason is that you should be able to take a given script and in finite amount of time be guaranteed to be able to reason about all the different ways that it could be satisfied and figure out the, like at most how much could a transaction spending these coins cost me or how large could it be? And you should be able to do that in a finite amount of time. And there are other systems, most notably Ethereum, that just throw that out the window. They say, well, screw analyzability. Let's just do everything that's possible. And that way we can write a compiler from JavaScript. And nobody is going to reason about this because nobody reasons about it anyway. And we'll just sort of YOLO it. And what we've seen in practice, of course, is that Ethereum developers deploy this. And then there are bugs in their code. And then $50 million is gone. And, uh, and this has happened multiple times. Um, and then, and then they don't merely talk about reorgs that they don't end up doing because it's oh, not possible. Man. They actually go ahead and change. They actually do. It's the whole thing. Yeah, there, there are many, many layers of bizarreness to the Ethereum ecosystem that I could talk about. But the one specifically that I want to talk about is, uh, is their scripting system being yeah. not designed to be analyzed in a, in a tractable way. But the thing is that Bitcoin people love to talk about this. We have a simple script system. It's designed to be analyzable. You can do it in finite time. Like in principle, all these wonderful things are true. But in practice, it's actually really hard to reason about Bitcoin script because you can do some pretty absurd things in it. You can have a script that like interprets a signature as a Boolean, um, where like if you have the empty signature, which will never validate, that's considered false. Um, if you have any other signature, that's considered true. Um, you can interpret these booleans as numbers. You can like rearrange the stack based on what these numbers are. So you can have a script that takes a signature, interprets it as a boolean, branches based on that, reinterprets a boolean as a number, and then rearranges that number the back stack element. And then, and I'm just sort of making stuff up here, but you can do arbitrarily complicated things. And while I shouldn't say arbitrarily complicated, while it is finitely complicated, 
is still intractable. Like if you try to write some piece of software that will actually reason about these things, you're going to have a bad time, right? So what Miniscript is, is it's this whole new language. And I'll explain how it relates to Bitcoin script in a second. It's really quite magical. But basically, it's a language for describing spending policies, where as first-class primitives, you have signature checks, right? You, you put a public key, and then to spend the coins, you need some sort of um, you need a signature on the transaction with a public key. You have hash primitive checks, and you have time locks, exactly the three things that I talked about Bitcoin being able to do. And then you can combine these in various combinations. You can have ands of these, like both of these have to be true or ors, one or both, or you can have enough thresholds. You can say like three of these five different conditions need to be true. And the way that Miniscript is encoded, there are two ways to represent Miniscript. One is as this like tree of ands and ors and thresholds and stuff where you've got all these signatures and hash pre-image requirements and time locks and all this kind of stuff. And when it's in this tree form, it's actually super easy to reason about what's possible and what's not. If you want to say like, well, I'm a countersigner and I want to make sure that there is no way that you can spend this, this mini script without my signature involved, you can just go through every single branch of the script and check that your key is in every single branch. And that's very easy to do, right? And so when you see an and, you only need to be on one side because it's an and, if it's an or, you need to be on both sides. It's like either one can be taken. The threshold is a bit more complicated, but this is very straightforward. Um, and this is actually tractable. It's easy to write software to do this. And I actually have written software to do this um, that I might talk about a bit later. Um, and we're starting to use this in Liquid to uh, replace some of our ad hoc Bitcoin scripting stuff. Um, so you get all this nice analyzability. That's great. Um, what does it have to do with Bitcoin? Well, there's a second way to encode Miniscript. And this encoding is actually in the form of Bitcoin script. And the resulting script is semantically equivalent to the miniscript. So I, I'm talking about miniscript like it's this tree of ands and ors and policies and stuff. But there's actually a way to encode this in the form of Bitcoin script. And when you do this, there are actually like a whole bunch of different ors. So if you're reading a miniscript, you might be looking like, why is there this cascade or and this um, Boolean or and like all these different kind of ors? They all they're all just ors. The reason is that in Bitcoin script, there are many ways to do ORs corresponding to the many different um, opcodes that are available. And in some contexts, some are more efficient than others. Um, some might require fewer bytes to encode in the, the script pub key and the public key associated to the coins. Others might require fewer bytes to actually spend. Like they might require, um, um, like some might require you push a zero or one to indicate which branch of an OR you want to take. But others might be do something more interesting where they just try to take the first branch. And if that fails, then they'll try to take the second one. And that's what you want to do if you have like a happy branch and an unhappy branch, right? You want to just default to taking the happy branch because you want that to be super cheap. And the unhappy one, you're already not happy that you're taking it. So it's okay if you have to do some inefficient things to, to access that branch. Um, and so being able to encode into Bitcoin script is great. It means that we can use Miniscript in Bitcoin right, because you just define this mini script describing your policy, and then you encode it to Bitcoin script, you put that on the blockchain, and you're off to the races. And now you have all of this great analyzability that we don't get for Bitcoin script, but that we've been promised for Bitcoin script for the last 10 years. Suddenly you get that. But the flip side of this is actually super cool. You can even, oh, are you guys still there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, both yes. frozen. Um, you can even de decode Bitcoin script to mini script. And this is where things get exciting. So I can take an arbitrary, not quite arbitrary, but all of the common script pub keys on the blockchain. 
I can take the one that's used by Liquid. I can take the one that's used by BitGo. I can take the one that's used by, by Green. I can take ones that are used by various escrow services like Bitrated and so on. Um, I can take all of these um, various complicated scripts that people are using for various reasons. I can decode those as miniscripts. And, the, and one reason that Miniscript has so many different kinds of ORs and ANDs and thresholds and so forth is to make sure that all of the different constructions in use today are valid Miniscripts. And so now I can take a script, which remember I just said, if you give me an arbitrary script, like what can I do with it? Like who knows what it's going to do? It might be like interpreting signatures as Booleans and doing impossible things to break my analysis software. I can just decode it into a Miniscript. If that works, that's great. If it doesn't, that was, it was probably something pretty pathological. Um, with one, one big exception, which is Lightning HTLCs, which are kind of pathological. What they do is they interpret a hash preimage as a public key under some situations. And that's the kind of crazy Bitcoin scripting thing that makes it hard to analyze. Um, so Lightning HTLCs need to keep their own kind of ad hoc code. But all of these more typical um, long-term custody solutions um, where you have some coins, you have a policy for spending them, and you just want to encode that, all of these, as they're implemented today, um, the script book keys are actually valid mini scripts. So now you can take something, and this is what I've been doing for the last couple of weeks, and this is what I was talking to Michael about at this um, get together recently. You can take some existing script, such as the one used in Liquid. You can decode that as a mini script. And now you have this tree-like structure describing all the different spending policies. Now using mini script software, you can say, well, how do I sign this? Oh, these are the public keys that I need signatures for and you give it signatures for all those public keys. And then it figures out how to arrange them. It figures out how to like choose the smallest signatures that are available to like optimize the spending witness. If you've got too many signatures, you can throw some away. Might as well throw away the big ones. Um, if you're doing stuff like spending the unhappy path, um, Liquid has an unhappy path that is used if the system shuts down, then Miniscript knows how to handle those signatures and knows how to arrange them. And this is something that before we had all of this really special purpose ad hoc code, parsing Bitcoin scripts as like byte strings and doing like search and replaces on it and like manually rearranging stack elements. And it was just very frustrating, very finicky code. We had a tremendous amount of unit tests doing things like checking that individual length were like encoded properly and there weren't weird, weird edge cases and stuff. But now we can throw all of that code away, just linked to the Rust mini script library. We can decode our existing system, our existing script pub key as a mini script, and then for free, we know how to satisfy it. We know how to satisfy it in the unhappy case. We know how to estimate um, how large um, an input will be when we spend it. Like once we put all the signatures in place, like how big will that be? We need to know this for fee estimation. That's now super easy. We don't need our own special code for that. We just use a mini script code. Once we have signatures, we can choose the optimal set of them, and it will just work. Um, if we want to change the um, set of participants in Liquid. We've got this giant 11 of 15 multi-signature. If we wanted to change the set of participants, we would want to guarantee something like, well, the new set of participants needs to be able to sign for the old coins, at least temporarily. And like maybe you do like multiple shifts or something. The reason being that um, when you transition a network to a new spending policy, there will be, like you can't do it all at once because the coins are actually on Bitcoin. There are real Bitcoins, they need to move you don't know how quickly your transactions are going to confirm. It certainly won't be an instant. It will be at least until the next block kind of thing. Um, so you need a transition period to get all of the incoming coins to confirm on Bitcoin and then sweep those incoming coins so that they're controlled by the new policy rather than the old one. 
And I don't know how we were hoping to enforce this before we started working on Miniscript. Because the problem here is I want to take an arbitrary script describing this new consortium, and they might be doing like really elaborate things. And I want to say, the signers who control this script need to be able to control this other script. And I want to be able to say that for arbitrary scripts. And with Miniscript, this is actually very easy to do, believe it or not. Um, like you just decode both script hub keys as many scripts, and now you've got this tree-like structure. It's easy to do this kind of analysis, and we can be assured that this is true. And before that, we would have had to written some really finicky templating code um, that probably would have been buggy. It probably would have done weird stuff. It probably would have like it would have been very difficult for us to write and for us to assure ourselves that it was correct. But with Miniscript, we get this high level of assurance. And we get the kind of assurance that we, as, as now I'm not Blockstream, now I'm in the Bitcoin community, that we in the Bitcoin community have been promising people for years. Like when we talk down about these really complicated terrain complete scripting systems as being intractable and impossible to analyze, um, this is like, in some sense, like unjustified because we didn't have that kind of tooling for Bitcoin. It was just in principle possible. And so, so and Andrew, yep. this this reminds me of like two two projects that came to mind as I heard this description, and one was um, simplicity, right? That yep. and I wanted to see how how Miniscript relates to simplicity, and you know what, um, because I'm not very familiar with either one. Uh, and then uh, Ivy, which was also a Bitcoin script compiler that I've heard of. Uh, do you want to comment on this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think the difference, so when we talk about why Turing completeness is a bad idea, what this is kind of a symptom of is there are these two different ways of looking at computation that you can take. You can think of computations in terms of execution. This is known as like imperative programming. You have like an instruction followed by an instruction followed by an instruction. And when you think, oh, I should make this Turing complete, um, what you're doing is you're saying, well, I want to be able to execute like anything that's possible to execute. Another way that you can look at computation is kind of in terms of verification, where instead of saying, I have an instruction followed by an instruction followed by an instruction, you say, I have an outcome that I want. And somehow the computer needs to take um, some input data, we call it a witness, it's sort of a, um, auxiliary data that helps uh, guide the computation. And you want some specific outcome to come out of this. And this is strictly less powerful than the execution model in like a very strong sense, um, in the sense that when you think in terms of execution, you can produce programs that it is impossible to say whether that program is going to complete in finite time given arbitrary inputs. Whereas when you think in terms of verification, um, this is not true. Like you sort of your verification process is fundamentally simpler than the execution process. And you lose a lot of power doing that. You no longer get unbounded loops. You no longer get like branches where you can't um, tell which one is going to be taken until like without just executing the code. But the thing is, you don't want that much power on a blockchain. That, that power is actually serves no purpose whatsoever on a blockchain. Because when you are spending coins on a blockchain, you aren't asking the blockchain to, to execute a bunch of code, you're asking the blockchain to verify that you have the authority to move these coins, okay? And 
if you're just trying to verify something, you're trying to verify that you have the authority to spend these coins, that's a strictly simpler problem. So you have the ability to use these strictly simpler systems, which then give you all of these extra benefits in terms of simpler analyzability. And so the problem with sort of the, the that's just the theory, but the practical problem that you get when trying to use execution oriented languages, such as Ethereum, and actually such as Bitcoin script, that's just a series of instructions, is that what you are actually trying to accomplish is verification oriented. You're actually trying to prove that the coins don't move unless they were supposed to be allowed to move. And your poor programmers, your poor smart contractors are taking this series of, of executions and trying to convince themselves that this series of executions somehow cannot lead to a place where these constraints aren't satisfied. And this is just like fundamentally impossible. And so what Miniscript gets you is it gets you a way of describing programs in this verification-oriented sense. Um, and Miniscript is very limited. It's very simple. All it supports are signatures, hash premages, and time locks. And it supports arbitrary trees of those. Um, and if that's all you want to support, then you've got a pretty easy problem ahead of you. Um, but in fact, you can support verifying arbitrary computations in principle. And to do this, you would need something much more powerful than just like check some uh, public keys, check some signatures. You, know, you just like fundamentally need a way to check something like um, if I add two bits, I want the result to correspond to the bit addition formula. If I have two bit strings and I add them in some sense, I want the result to correspond to what I know binary addition actually is. And this is where simplicity comes in. Simplicity is a fully general um, smart contracting programming language that is verification oriented. A simplicity program is, there are many ways to, to think about a simplicity program, but one is as the final state of a given computation. And so attached to that state is actually what the computation is, all the different paths that might be taken. And to spend the coins controlled by a simplicity program, you reveal what branch of this program that you took and also provide witnesses, these auxiliary data that are needed to satisfy whatever these conditions of the branch are. So if you want to add two numbers, rather than saying something like, here's two numbers, execute this add opcode, what instead you have is a simplicity program, which itself describes the operation of addition going down to like the lowest level in terms of like bits. And actually it goes even lower than bits. You actually define a bit as, a, as being one of two abstract objects. Um, and then you provide witnesses showing that you can actually, um, that it is actually possible to instantiate this program in a way that the result is an accepting output. So you get kind of the benefits of this verification oriented um, paradigm in that it is possible tractably to prove whatever statements you might want to prove. Like the example I gave where a counterparty, a countersigner might want to prove that they are involved in every possible execution or a um, person participating in an atomic swap or something like that might want to prove that their counterparty can't claw back their coins until some time lock has expired or like anybody who has any coins in some sort of complicated contract will probably want to be able to bound the cost of spending those coins be able to prove there is no way anyone can get me into a position where it's going to take some massive like multi-megabyte transaction to spend Kind of thing. Those are the kind of questions that you can very efficiently answer about simplicity programs.
But because simplicity is so powerful and so low level, it's actually very difficult to use directly. Um, and in fact, what you typically do is you have somebody like Russell O'Connor, the inventor of simplicity, defining these addition um, operators, all these like low level things, elliptic curve operations. And then he knows using like all these magic theorem proving um, assistants and, and programs that he has from the verifi verifiable computing world, how to um, rigorously mathematically prove that his simplicity program is actually equivalent to the mathematical operation you want it to correspond to. Um, and so then you kind of get something similar to like Bitcoin script where you have these opcodes and they aren't really opcodes, they really are like full simplicity programs, but you're just taking them as black boxes. You're saying like these are, this has been formally proven to be equivalent to the operation I want, so I'm going to use that. And so this brings us to the third thing you mentioned, which is Ivy. And so Ivy is a much more high level smart contracting language. Ivy is similar in some ways to Miniscript. It's a bit more general than Miniscript is my understanding. It can do more complicated things than just checking signatures and time locks and hash images. Um, as a result of being a bit more complicated, it's harder to answer some of the specific questions that I answered, but it achieves a lot of the same high level goals. Um, and IV compiles to Bitcoin script. So actually here, here's the biggest difference I think between IV and Miniscript. IV compiles to Bitcoin script. And in principle, it could compile to simplicity um, as well. So you've got some sort of computer program, a compiler that's taking your IV program and it's actually determining an equivalent Bitcoin script program that will have the same semantics. And um, if you want to be sure of what the compiler is doing, you've got to like really squint at it and do like all your usual code analysis and like rigorous review and, and you know, many eyes make all bugs shallow, all that good stuff. Um, and the code is really well written. Um, like it's awesome code, but you've got to verify and, and compilers are big and complicated. Um, Miniscript does not compile to Bitcoin script. Miniscript is Bitcoin script. It's encoded to Bitcoin script. So your translation phase from this sort of abstract tree thing in Miniscript to Bitcoin script is really like you take this, the tree and you write it down. So you see like an or, like a Boolean or in Miniscript. The way you write that down is you encode the left branch you encode the right branch and use the bool or operator. And you just encode that byte. I forget what, what byte that is. You just stick that byte after your encodings. If you see a check sig, it's got, uh, or sorry, a signature check in Miniscript. You encode that by writing the corresponding public key in Bitcoin script, followed by the check sig operator. And some context, you might use check sig verify. Um, and it's really just like an encoding. There's no intelligence. Well, you can do this by hand if you want. And so if you want to verify that a given miniscript corresponds to a um, given Bitcoin script, well, you can, you can literally do it by inspection. You can do it by hand. You can write your own software to do it. It's very straightforward. Um, so you get, like, you get some very high assurance. Like we really got a lot of value out of limiting miniscript to be such an incredibly simple language. Um, we got this compatibility with existing scripts and we also got this like you can use Miniscript, um, you can translate script into Miniscript and back by hand if, you, if you're so patient and familiar with Miniscript. So, so you'd mentioned that uh, the use case that you're addressing with Miniscript currently is with Liquid. And I don't think we've actually explained uh, what Liquid is and how it works on this podcast. Do you mind uh, just giving us kind of the, uh, the, the high level summary of Liquid? I, I don't want to... 
this will force you into a you know two hour lecture about liquid, but um, yeah. Yeah, no, I can definitely talk a bit about liquid. Um, liquid is fun. Some days I think like it's the most boring thing ever, and some days I think it's the most exciting thing ever. Um, and let me, yeah, I'll explain why it's boring because that's that's the short answer. Liquid is something called a sidechain. Um, it is a separate blockchain. It's independent of the Bitcoin chain. Um, all of the blocks are signed by a consortium of members who are in charge of maintaining the chain's forward progress. What makes it a sidechain rather than a like an altcoin or whatever like private blockchain or whatever um, things people are using blockchains for is that it supports what's called a cryptographic peg. So if you want um, a token on Liquid, an LBTC, you can actually move your Bitcoin from the Bitcoin network onto the Liquid network. And the way you do that is that the Liquid consortium, the people responsible for signing these blocks, um, also know how to, are, are also jointly custodying um, a whole bunch of Bitcoins. So they are backing as all these like LBTC tokens. These are actually proxy Bitcoins and the Liquid consortium is backing all of these. But to move coins into the Liquid network, what you do is you think of an address on Liquid that you want to send coins to. You take the Liquid, um, we call them functionary, these consortium members, the Liquid functionary operator's address. You take all of their public keys and you tweak them in a way that you turn their public keys into a cryptographic commitment of your address. And then you send your coins to this like tweet liquid address. And then on the liquid sidechain, so you wait, you publish that to Bitcoin, you wait for it to be confirmed, we require like 100 blocks um, because Bitcoin tends to reorg and, and sometimes people try to make it reorg in big ways. Um, you require 100 blocks. And then on the liquid side, you make what's called a claim transaction. You say, hey, here, I want to send these coins uh, somewhere. Um, I don't actually have coins on liquid, but I have these coins controlled by some address and actually here's a reference to a Bitcoin block where, or a Bitcoin transaction, where I transferred control of the coins to the Federation. So now they should be mine. And in doing so, I committed to this, this address. And so what happens is that these coins on the Bitcoin blockchain that you moved into the network are basically treated as like honorary coins on the liquid network. And in this claim transaction, you were providing a cryptographic proof that you did this, and then you were spending the coins and then moving them to somewhere else. Um, and then moving the coins out of the system is like much less uh, cryptographically interesting. You do what's called a pay-go request on the, the liquid sidechain, where you say like, I am basically burning these coins. I want them back on Bitcoin. Send them to these address, please. And then the consortium who actually controls the Bitcoins will then sign a transaction sending them over to you. So. That's why Liquid is boring. It's just like a giant multi-signature. That's what that's what I would say internally when people were talking about developing. I'm like, it's just a multi-signature. Like that's no fun. That's not why I joined Blockstream to do multi-signatures. I say after spending half an hour talking about <laughs> Miniscript, which is uh, which really is just a giant multi-signature. Um, but what's exciting about Liquid is what you get on this blockchain. So the Liquid blockchain, um, by virtue of being signed, you get like one-minute blocks. Um, you have, you don't have to worry about reorgs. Um, that's nice. That's kind of cool. Business people seem to like that. Uh, the cool thing that you get out of Liquid is something called confidential transactions. And actually, it's new, uh, uh, it's extension confidential assets. So on the Liquid blockchain, every output um, amount, every input and output amount, rather than being an explicit visible amount like it is on Bitcoin, is replaced by a cryptographic object called the Pedersen commitment. And this is what's called a homomorphic commitment. The word homomorphic means that you can add. 
And verifiers can add up all the input commitments. They can add up all the output commitments and check that those are equal. And when they do so, they, they verify that the commitments are equal. So they learn that the transaction did not create or destroy any Bitcoins. And as you does one better, you have like these arbitrary uh, issued assets. You have these other tokens that people can issue on the liquid network. And you can say within a transaction, validators can confirm that no asset was created or destroyed or transmuted or anything like that. But they learn nothing about how many um, different assets were in play. They learn nothing about the amount of the individual asset classes. And they basically learn nothing about what this transaction is doing. Um, and this means that you can't identify like which outputs are chain and are change makes a lot of chain analysis much harder. Um, and so this is something that actually a lot of your listeners may be familiar with because this technology is in Monero. It's in um, Mimblewimble, I guess the Grin blockchain, which implements Mimblewimble, has this confidential transaction stuff. Um, there are a few other uh, random altcoins out there that have this confidential transaction stuff. This actually originated with Liquid. Blockstream developed confidential transactions for Liquid. Um, and we extend it to the multi-asset case um, in case you want to do things like atomic swaps um, on the same blockchain of multiple assets while preserving this kind of privacy. So I, I think uh, one of the questions at this point that maybe someone in our audience would have would be, why don't we have confidential transactions on chain with Bitcoin and we can have it on the liquid blockchain? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so there are two reasons. One is the efficiency of confidential transactions, like the verifier efficiency. So Bitcoin takes quite a while to sync. Like if you start up a new node, assuming you have a fast enough internet connection, just download the blocks, it's going to take you several hours on a good machine to verify the whole uh, Bitcoin blockchain. It will take you much longer to verify Liquid because you have to verify all these confidential transactions. Um, uh, the verification equation for confidential transactions is much more complicated than the... Uh, crypto required. I mean, there's not even any crypto required to check the Bitcoin transaction balance. You see the amounts, you add them up, you subtract them. Subtraction, computers are good at subtraction. They're not so good at cryptography. Um, and in our initial version of confidential transactions, um, we had these objects called range proofs that were um, two and a half kilobytes in size, and they would take several milliseconds to verify. And um, I think it was like four or five milliseconds. And they couldn't really be batch validated. So like when you have to verify hundreds of them, you just have a hundred times as much work. Um, and it was awful. Later we developed a, uh, with our friend at Stanford, Benedict Boons um, and Dan Bonet um, and Jonathan Boodle at UCL, developed a more efficient form of range proof called the bulletproof, which gets us down from multiple kilobytes to like 700 bytes and gets us up from 32 bit values, which kind of suck, that's only like 600 Bitcoin max, uh, up to 64 bits, which is, you can have all the Bitcoins in one, in one output. Um, and it's much smaller and it's faster to verify. It goes down to two and a half milliseconds instead of uh, four or five. Um, and you get batch validation. So if you have like a hundred in a row, the first one will cost you two and a half milliseconds, but all the ones after that will only cost you a few hundred microseconds, which is pretty cool. But that's still much too slow for Bitcoin. Or not much too slow, but too slow. So that's the first reason, is that there's a bunch of extra blockchain space required and it's slow to verify. The second reason- But if someone were to, if they're willing to pay for that block space, then isn't it acceptable? That, you so, know, because they are, there's a market cost in it? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Um, so in principle, we could make this optional. We could let people use this if they're willing to pay for privacy. The problem is 
that in practice, ordinary people are not usually willing to pay for privacy. Um, it's easy to talk about how you should be able to go to the store without your credit card company knowing all the groceries that you're buying and without um, advertisers knowing where you live and what you're buying and what you're interested in and what your politics are. Um, and being able to have this like incredibly rich surveillance infrastructure based on your spending patterns. The truth is that when people are trying to pay their rent, when they're trying to buy their groceries, when they're trying to live their lives, they don't feel the privacy loss that they're encountering by using the traditional banking system. And even to the extent they do feel it, they don't have the spare money. They can't add like a whole bunch of extra fees to paying their rent. Um, just to preserve their privacy in some sense. And so the result is that if you have a system where privacy is optional, only people, the only people using it are people who are voluntarily using it and willing to pay, the result is you have a very small anonymity set that consists of people who have very acute privacy needs, people who have like political or personal or um, whatever reasons for needing a lot of privacy. And they get correspondingly less privacy because now they're sharing. Um, when you look at the blockchain, you only see like maybe 1% of transactions. And this is literally what it was in Zcash for the longest time. 1% of transactions are private. And you know that 1% of transactions consists of like the people who like you can really, <coughs> really uh, get a lot of uh, results out of trying to de-anonymize them. Whereas when you have a system where privacy is just built in, like in Liquid or in Monero or like in Mimblewimble, and there's no way to opt out of it, um, or rather there's no, um, if you opt out of it, you don't get like some massive benefit. It's not super cheap, uh, so people will just use it. Then um, your anonymity set is now everybody. So now not only does everybody get this privacy and you no longer have the ability to create these massive surveillance infrastructure, um, but the people who really need it for acute reasons um, because they're hiding from, from some subset of, of society that is trying to persecute them, those people now have a much wider uh, net and much more plausible deniability for using this kind of privacy technology. So for this reason, I don't think you would get a lot of buy-in from the Bitcoin community for optional privacy. I think that there are a lot of very vocal people in this space who are concerned about this, um, and who, who would argue quite passionately that optional privacy is more or less as good as no privacy at all. And we've seen this in practice with Zcash, right? But this is actually, we have a listener question, which is uh, related to this question of, of privacy and cost. Um, he, Stefan Gruber asks, which upgrades to the Bitcoin protocol have to be made to make coin join transactions cheaper than regular transactions? Um, and I would just generalize that question to like, okay, you're, you're explaining how privacy costs more than non-privacy. Are there situations we can see, foresee in the future where privacy will be less expensive than non-privacy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so right now, I think CoinJoin is a little bit cheaper than not using CoinJoin because you like amortize the version and like a couple other fields. You save like eight bytes doing that. But that's, that's not real. Nobody cares about saving eight bytes um, enough to use CoinJoin software. Um, there are some future technologies that absolutely will make CoinJoin cheaper than non-CoinJoin. Uh, the one that Stefan might be hinting at here is something called signature aggregation. And this is a technology where if we had a more um, 
flexible and expressive signature scheme than the ECDSA signatures that Bitcoin uses today, um, it would be possible to do what's called aggregating them. And in a Bitcoin transaction, what this means is that when you're spending multiple inputs and you have a different signature on every single input, you can combine these all into basically one signature that simultaneously has the effect of all of the original signatures. And so the resulting transaction would be much smaller because you have one signature instead of one for every input um, and much cheaper to verify. And you get more benefit the larger your transaction is because you can aggregate within a transaction. Of course, you can combine all the signatures from all your inputs, but you can't aggregate across transactions. Um, there's no way to do that efficiently. Um, there are some ways to do it kind of inefficiently, like break caching, it causes a lot of trouble when you try to do this. Um, so the only way to aggregate is within a transaction interactively. And that's exactly what CoinJoin is doing, is aggregating all these transactions. CoinJoin does it for privacy reasons to try to eliminate the input-output mapping um, that is inherent in any transaction, because the transaction is like an atomic unit, it has some inputs, it has some outputs. Um, but then if we had signature aggregation, then people would do coin, people would be incentivized to use CoinJoin even if they didn't care about privacy at all, because it would be materially cheaper for them to do so. Um, so to get signature aggregation into Bitcoin, unfortunately, that's going to be quite a long time coming. Um, so the first step would be for Bitcoin to support something like Schnorr signatures rather than the ECDSA signatures that they use today. But um, the second step would be coming up with a design for signature aggregation that was simple enough that could get through the community review progress, uh, process. Sorry to interject, also, but so like Schnorr yeah. right now is at kind of the BIP stage where we've had one proposal come out very recently from your, your co-worker at Blockstream, Peter Wolf. And, uh, but the signature aggregation, like that's pre-BIP research that is that being worked on today by by some people in the Bitcoin developer community? Indirectly, yes. So all of the work on efficient Schnorr multi-signatures and threshold signatures, um, which we will get with just ordinary Schnorr signatures, all the work on that will directly apply to signature aggregation. But we need to complete that work. We need to figure out how we can even do regular multi-signatures and threshold signatures in a way that is robust against um, uh, like limited hardware and, and uh, um, signing in contexts where it's difficult to otherwise have robust protocols. You might have a hardware wallet that doesn't have any memory, so you can like unplug it and replug it like halfway through a signing session or something. You don't want to be able to replay data against it. Um, you don't want to be able to give it stale data, but if it doesn't have memory, it's, there are difficult problems around this um, that we're working on now, and those need to be solved before we can start directly working on signature aggregation. It, this relates to something that you were telling me, uh, you know, the the other day, uh, which is that a lot of people get confused about Schnorr because they think Schnorr is just this big package that includes yeah. everything. When really Schnorr is just the a specific signature scheme, and the rest of this are things that are built on top of that. Sort of uh, yep. require Schnorr as a prerequisite. Yep. Yeah, so I can elaborate on that a bit. So as you say, Schnorr is just a, a type of digital signature. It's an alternative to ECDSA. By itself, Schnorr is not very interesting. It's a little bit faster to verify, but like not very much faster. You can batch verify it, but you could actually batch verify like a variant of ECDSA. Um, it has some nice like linearity properties that, that you can do some cool stuff, but those cool things are not Schnorr. Um, so if you get excited by Schnorr by itself, 
you might do something like the Bcash folks did and like go implement Schnorr signatures just as a drop-in replacement for ECDSA, except you don't do it for multi-signatures because you haven't solved the multi-signature related problems that you need to solve to get all the cool benefits and stuff. And the result is just like kind of silly, like you're just hard forking for the sake of hard forking um, and to like, I don't know, demonstrate some sort of weird power trip about how you can like make coins unspendable. But since you own the chain, you can just like make them spendable again. And that's a perfectly reasonable governance model. And that is, that's what trustless means. So if your goal is to make insane claims like that, I mean, Bcash has got you and they've got Schnorr signatures to help out. Um, but if your goal is any of the cool things that we've been talking about in the media that have been associated with Schnorr, um, those are things that require Schnorr to work. They're sort of extensions or things that build on Schnorr, um, but they themselves are not Schnorr. So let me talk about the big one that we recently had a, a BIP draft or, or a proposal for a BIP published to the, the Bitcoin mailing list by that Peter. Be my that was going to be my next question. Yeah. So yeah. perfect. So, all right. So, um, so first I should say this is a joint work. It's primarily Peter Willa, Greg Maxwell, AJ Towns, and Johnson Lau are the big people behind this. Um, I every so often pop up and like whine about things and complain that it's moving too slow and then like interject was like, why can't you change all these things? And PS, why isn't it done? But please change these things. Uh, Russell O'Connor does this as well. There are a whole bunch of us who pop in and do this. Um, but it's mostly those four, um, Peter, Greg, AJ, JL. And what Taproot is, is it is a proposal to um, create a new SegWit output version or a new Bitcoin output version. I shouldn't say SegWit, it's, like, um, it's just a new um, version of Bitcoin outputs using the versioning system that SegWit introduced. Um, where every output, instead of being described by a script, um, you remember I was just talking about Bitcoin script, you can do all these cool things. Instead of having a script, you have a public key, okay? And to spend the coins, you have to produce a signature with a public key. And this brings us to like the intuitive model that most people have of Bitcoin, where like every coin has a key to spend the coins and you just sign with the key. But wait, you might be saying, like, if that's what we're reducing these outputs to, like that's ridiculous. You just spent half an hour talking about miniscript and how you can do all these cool things. So how can you do that with uh, if now you just produce signatures? So the cool thing is that it is possible to efficiently interactively produce Schnorr signatures. So you can have a Schnorr signature that has a public key that is actually jointly controlled by multiple people. You could have like this, this two or three output that are very common for various escrow and countersigning services. And you can have the three counterparties, or it's the two counterparties and, and some cold key somewhere. Uh, you jointly create a key that's a combination of all of these, and it's just a single key. And then you can interactively create what's called a threshold signature, where any pair of those three people can come together and interactively produce a signature that will verify with the original key. And it's just an ordinary Schnorr signature. So what the, what the signature will be from the perspective of blockchain verifier is the same as an ordinary person spending their coins. It's just they'll see one public key that'll see one signature. So you can get thresholds this way. And in fact, you can get like arbitrary combinations, arbitrary ands and ors of different signature requirements. Um, you can get just using these interactive signature generation schemes. And so this by itself gets you some of the power of Bitcoin script, actually the most common part of the power of Bitcoin script. Um, and it gets you this in a very scalable private way. Like you get a, a huge benefit from using Taproot to do this rather than using um, 
ordinary Bitcoin script, which is that because the resulting signature is the same as an ordinary single signer signature, it has the same size and the same verification cost as any other um, any other signature, so it's much cheaper. Uh, and you also get a privacy benefit. People verifying the blockchain can no longer distinguish signatures that were produced by a single person spending their coins from signatures that were produced by a two of three uh, ESCO type service from signatures that are like 11 to 15 liquid spends. I mean, you can distinguish liquid transactions in a lot of ways, but you can't do it this way now. Um, or like signatures that are countersigned by BitGo or other companies or CASA or like somebody who um, maybe you can imagine a service that wants to do countersigning, but they want their customers don't want to reveal that they're using this countersigning service because it's only for like very um, for like people who are, are very widely known targets. Um, you could do this in a way that it would be invisible to the blockchain that you are using this service. So you get the, the scalability benefits and you get the privacy benefits. Um, so that's multi-signatures, okay. But that's, I mean, there are other things Bitcoin Script can do. What about hash preimages? What about, um, like I mentioned how Lightning works, where you have one party reveals some sort of secret to the blockchain, then the other party copies it off the blockchain and transfers it and transfer it. Um, it turns out you can do this with Taproot as well. So there's something called an adapter signature. So again, you notice I'm not using the word Schnorr signature. Before I was talking about threshold signatures, now I'm talking about adapter signatures. These all look to the blockchain like they're Schnorr signatures, but like they're really different things. They're, they're produced in, in fundamentally different ways. An adapter signature is a type of multi-signature where you have two parties and you, you can generalize this. So Adam Gibson has a way to do this with many parties, but the two party case is the, the most straightforward where one party produces, uh, contributes to a signature, like some signature is going to hit the blockchain and they do so in a way where the other party um, promises them that when they complete the signature and publish to the blockchain, by completing the signature, they reveal some secret. And the way they do this is there's some interactive protocol where basically the first party thinks of some secret, they encrypt the signature to their final signature and pass that to the first party. And at this point, the original party can like free to sign, like, okay, you can have your coins, I will sign to give you your coins. Um, and this is part of some wider protocol where you don't want to give the, the other guy his coins unless you know you're going to get this hash preimage, right? But because the other guy gave you this encrypted version of this hash preimage, you're, you're fine. So you sign to give him his coins, you give him a signature. He makes his own signature, adds that to the final signature, publishes it to the blockchain. You look at the blockchain, you see the signature, and you do some, some uh, crazy algebra and you're able to extract the secret. And so this works like a hash preimage. And so you get a secret out of the signature. Um, you can then use that to produce a different signature and like go through the chain um, and link a whole bunch of liquid transactions this way. And actually doing it this way, as, instead of using hash preimages, has a bunch of other benefits, other privacy benefits. You can like reblind it at every step. Um, so that even if you have the same party in multiple parts of a lightning path, that party can't then link the payments and be able to de-anonymize people that way. So now we have hash preimages. We've got multi-signatures and arbitrary signatures. We've also got hash preimages that you can also do um, where the result is just a single signature. So now you can do much more elaborate things. You can do not only like escrow and multi-signatures, but you can also do lightning in a way that the resulting outputs just have a key, you spend them with a signature. So we've offloaded like all of this script kind of stuff um, into uh, just into these signatures. And so the third piece um, of Miniscript, I guess, uh, of like what people use Bitcoin script for are these time locks. And doing these in a purely signature sense 
is very difficult. And I don't really have time to go into some of the research and, and how to do this. But let's just say that you can't do it. Let's say you have to use script. Um, or let's say that you don't want to produce signatures interactively because you have like somebody who has a key like in a safe and he can only access the safe um, like at midnight on, on the full moon, like with like three werewolves present at like a specific cemetery. Um, and nobody else find out my how did you yeah. find out my my keys? I'm gonna have to go fix my security now. You are, yes, I'm afraid. Uh, OPSEC has been compromised. Yep, no, so there, there was dirt on the back of your shoe and I was able to recognize that exact form of dirt. And anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm moonlight. Title attacks. Exactly, and Moonlight is a detective uh, in a mystery novel, so. Well, lizards can do mind reading as well, yeah. so it, it all makes sense. Well, we're not supposed to talk about that. Plus, you guys just control Bitcoin, so you know where all the coins are anyway. <laughs> That's true, but it's still knowing where all the bitcoins are, even when they're buried like in a cemetery. That's hard because that's actually the um, that's the one way I shouldn't admit that that's the one way to hide your coins from blockchain from blockstream is to uh, to bury it um, in a haunted cemetery. So, but uh, but yeah, we still we're, we're, yeah. We're, we're, right, right, sorry, let me get, let me get back to what I was yeah. saying. Um, we're, learning, we're mapping out all the cemeteries. That's a real conspiracy. Um, no, the um, you don't want to use interactivity, okay? Because you've got like people with their uh, signing keys and some of their cold storage. It's difficult to access, and maybe not everybody can access it at the same time. Um, or maybe you want like auditability. You want individual signatures on the blockchain, um, so you can see who exactly signed. Um, this annoys me because you're using blockchain space for your own personal means, but that people want to do this. Um, then you need to go back to Bitcoin script. And here is like really the cool innovation of Taproot. So they, or the, the second half of what's cool about Taproot. The first half is like, look, you can do all these things and you just need a signature. The second half is that we can take an arbitrary script, like a mini script or like, um, we have a, a slight extension to Bitcoin script we call TapScript, where we fixed a couple of warts that we didn't like in script. Um, and you can take your public key and you can turn that into a commitment to this alternate script. So if you have, say, some coins where you're willing to do the interactive thing, but you need a time lock, you need to say, like, after some amount of time, maybe the counterparties have disappeared and we need to go, uh, we, we need to do this backup thing, um, then you can reveal the script. Um, you can prove that this public key committed to the script, so like you didn't just make it up, you aren't just stealing the coins. And then the script has all the semantics you need. It has a time lock, it has the alternate keys, um, it has whatever like weird branches and stuff that you have in the unhappy case. You reveal the script and then you satisfy it just the same as ordinary Bitcoin. But if you don't need to use this, if you can actually, like everybody's online and, and willing to sign at the same time interactively, then you don't reveal the script and nobody even learns that the script is there at all. So for things like Lightning, where you need to have some sort of script for this uh, backup emergency policy, you can still have it there. You have it committed inside of the taproot key, and you just never reveal it unless you're doing an uncooperative close, is the idea. So you get the expressivity and the flexibility of having these explicit scripts, but you still retain uh, all of your privacy in the case that you don't have to use it. Um, and in most cases, um, there is kind of a happy case where everybody's online at the same time and that you just don't have to reveal it. Choose your um, peers carefully. Find reliable peers who are going to cooperatively close with you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then like the cases where this isn't 
really possible a case of like cold like cold wallets where like really you aren't moving coins very often anyway so the added inefficiency of revealing the script um is not as big a cost to you and the added privacy loss is not a biggest cost to you um all your normal day-to-day -day transactions are happening like on the lightning network and those transactions never reveal this alternate script they never reveal their lightning payments versus any other kind of payment um so that is that is that's what taproot is um, it gives us a way to do all the things that people are using script for, where in the most common cases, all of these different applications of script all kind of turn into just a public key and a signature. They're indistinguishable from applications where people aren't using script. Um, so that's very exciting for scalability and for efficiency of for verifier efficiency. And it's also super exciting for privacy and fungibility because it means that all of the coins that are like actively moving around um, once people start using this, um, will be basically indistinguishable from each other, um, aside from so their amount. This does go to one of the questions from our audience of, uh, with, with all of what you're discussing, is privacy a solved problem? Uh, you mentioned some some of the limitations, but by and large, would you agree that this is this solves privacy? No, it solves, so it solves half of the problem of privacy, um, or maybe a so. That's a complicated question. I'm not going to try to quantify how much it solves, but there are a few major privacy losses um, or, or vectors for fingerprinting in Bitcoin. Um, one of which is just like the way wallets create transactions, how they order their change outputs, like what they set their sequence numbers to, like, like a bunch of little dumb stuff like that. This is just on wallets to try to be uh, homogeneous about. Another is the signing Does, policy. Would Miniscript help with that if everyone's using one library? that is doing everything like how, how do we get to a world like that it seems unlikely where people are not hand rolling their things um miniscript will actually probably make it worse because yeah. it will make it possible to do more creative things so like right now people are doing like boring things because doing anything exciting is like really hard to do in a robust way but miniscript will make it possible to do in a robust way so then suddenly you're going to see like a lot more complicated policies and stuff like this um, but in conjunction with Taproot and TapScript, which I didn't talk about, but that's, that's the, the Bitcoin script that uh, Taproot has committed to, um, then you'll be able to do these complicated things, but then not um, still retain the privacy. Um, so the aspect of privacy that TapScript, or sorry, that Taproot improves is privacy of what your spending policy is. And so that's what we're touching on with Miniscript here. Um, and this is not so easy. It's not a matter of improving your wallet software or like somehow generating your transactions in a more clever way. Um, if you have coins that are controlled by a specific policy, right now you have to reveal that to the Bitcoin network and you have to reveal how you're using that policy. And so Taproot eliminates that vector for privacy loss. Which is, which is great. It means that you're no longer revealing to the world that like BitGo is your countersigner. So like if people want to attack you, they should attack BitGo um, or that you're using some specific wallet who's countersigning or that you're using some complicated like a side chain with a consortium of coins or whatever. Um, this solves that aspect of privacy. But there are two other major privacy um, vec uh, losses that Taproot does not help with. One is the amounts that are in Bitcoin transactions. Right now, when you send coins to people, you create a transaction, you typically send like some fairly round number of coins to somebody, and then like you have to spend a bunch of whole inputs, and so there'd be some like very specific number 
that you give back to yourself in the form of change and then some other small number that you give to miners in the form of fee. So it's very visible what is an actual output going somewhere and what's change. And you can develop like a very accurate picture of the transaction graph of where all the coins are moving. Um, and it's nice that you can no longer identify people by their spending policies, but you can still build a graph. And then if you like know that some address belongs to some user of an exchange, say because you like work for that exchange or you work for a government that has uh, imposed data um, revealing requirements on said exchange, um, then you can link some part of the transaction graph to an individual. And then because of the graph, you can sort of connect all sorts of other transactions. The taproot doesn't do anything about that. To improve amount privacy, um, which would mean uh, hiding how much is being sent and, and what's changing, what's not, um, and make coin join a lot more effective, you would need something like confidential transactions. Um, and that's a long ways away, both for the efficiency reason that I mentioned, and also for another reason I didn't get into, um, and I probably don't have time, but if you change the inflation soundness of Bitcoin, from the current situation where you can look at every transaction and add up the amounts and make sure they balance to a situation where you have to trust some cryptographic assumption, I would guess that would be a hard pill to swallow for a lot of the Bitcoin community. I know like, I personally get kind of uncomfortable with that. Um, and so any sort of confidential transaction scheme is going to have to deal with that um, form of opposition. And then there is a third like big area of privacy loss, and that is the transaction graph itself. That is which coins are being spent in an individual transaction. And so Monero makes some headway on this by using like ring signatures, but unfortunately at a massive uh, scalability cost because they need to, you can't tell what coins have been spent. So everybody has to maintain this ever growing list of coins that might've been spent and like keep referring to it. Um, or Zcash does a much stronger thing. It actually, you choose an individual coin and spend it in zero knowledge. So now no one can tell. It's not just like one of these three or one of these seven. Um, it's like one of any of the coins at some specific block height um, that you have to refer to. But they have the same problem. You have this ever-growing accumulator that everybody has. So there's a huge scalability hit there. Um, Mimblewimble tries to solve this by making CoinJoin like super effective. Um, but then it, there's a lot of uh, logistical difficulties with that because now everybody has to coordinate to do these coin joins. And then if anybody sees the original transactions before they were joined, um, that's potentially a privacy loss. Um, and on Bitcoin, you can do coin joins as well. Um, we've talked about how these aren't strongly incentivized. Um, and have you looked at software like Wasabi Wallet? Do you have a, a view on that, that software or any coin join software out there? Not in too much detail. I haven't really looked at Wasabi. Um, I've looked at Join Market a little bit more, but like even not very. Um, and I can tell you a limitation of both of these. And I think one reason that they are not widely used um, beyond the incentive structure not being so great is that to use these, you have to move your coins into these walls. Okay, and these are written by uh, fairly small teams of like very uh, privacy-focused uh, very passionate people um, who are, are solid programmers and who know what they're doing, to be clear. But they're still small teams who, whose code is not like super widely used and has been reviewed by, by massive players with massive amounts of money to spend reviewing code. Um, and this is something that scares people, right? You don't want to move a ton of your coins into some wallet who's, um, it's not like 
being a wallet is kind of like this annoying thing that they have to be um, and not what they want to focus on. They want to focus on being coin joint clients, right? Um, and the reason that you have to do this is because if you want to produce a coin join, then you need to connect um, all these transactions together and then you need to be able to sign the combined transaction. You need to be able to recognize your own inputs and make sure that you're not like being tricked into signing for inputs that you didn't want to include in there. Um, you need to recognize your own outputs and make sure that all of those are appearing and so forth. And that means basically that you have to be interacting with the same software as you're using. And this is something that it's kind of the, the one-two punch of Miniscript and something called PSBT that I keep throwing in new terms and like already over time, but um, uh, PSBT is a um, interchange format for the stands for partially signed Bitcoin transaction for transactions that multiple parties need to throw signatures onto. Just an interchange format. So um, if I need to sign, um, so if we're trying to do like a coin join, we agree on this big transaction. Um, I put it in the PSBT, I attach my signatures, you attach your signatures, um, Pierre attaches his signatures, and then one of us needs to take those signatures and actually like put them into the right places and all the inputs. And so PSBT makes this a little bit less ad hoc because now we have a standard format for passing things around. But of course, we still need to understand how to assemble the signatures. We need to know like the outputs need to be some specific um, format that we all recognize and know how to work with. But with Miniscript, suddenly every possible um, policy that people might be using falls under the, the purview of um, scripts that we know how to deal with. So now um, maybe I am doing some weird complicated thing. I've got like BitGo countersigning my transactions and I've got like a ledger somewhere and we have like an emergency backout and all this crazy stuff. And I want to coin join a transaction spending those coins with you. And you're meanwhile have like completely separate infrastructure. So we come up with these, um, so we combine our transactions. Okay. Um, we all attach our signatures and then somebody needs to recognize which signatures go to what output and in what order and like whether you need to push like zeros or ones to indicate like which branch of some complicated script is being taken or, or whatever, or recognize whether a time lock has expired and if that's available and blah, blah, blah. And right now there's no general purpose software that can do that. So as a result, you can basically only coin join with, um, with the same software, which means if you want to coin join, you need to be using join market and coin join with join market users, or you need to be using Wasabi and coin join with other Wasabi users. But in future, you'll be able to have whatever signing of a structure you want, just attach these signatures to a PSBT, and then some arbitrary party, like anyone participating who acts in the role of a PSBT finalizer, if I'm getting the different roles in PSBT, sometimes I confuse them. The finalizer, just using Miniscript software, recognizes what signatures are needed, recognizes when inputs have been satisfied, recognizes how to assemble them, and just bang, 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 puts them all in the right order and ships it out. And it doesn't matter that everybody involved has their different complex policies and nobody individually understands each other's policies. Um, everybody is still able to interoperate in this way. Um, so I have very high hopes that as Miniscript is more developed, and, uh, and like right now, to be clear, like this is something that's a draft on Peter's website and I have a Rust library that I keep changing every five minutes. And like, this is really early stage software. Um, we're using it in Liquid and I'm like developing the library in parallel to my use in, uh, in Liquid's internal development branch. Um, but this will be something that's, that's much more publicly uh, visible and promoted uh, in the next few weeks or months uh, once, once uh, Taproot is sort of settled down a little bit. 
Um, and I'm very excited about how that's going to change the surface of wallet, interoper um, wallet interoperability um, and make things like CoinJoin a lot more easy, a lot more possible even for people to do um, in, in, a, in a compatible way with their Uh-oh, we lost the signal. Michael, are you there? He, he revealed too much. Yeah, they cut him off. The CIA intervened. Hey, Andrew, can you hear us? Hey, am I back? Yep. You revealed too much. Was cool, Michael the tab said. crashed on me. <laughs> I'm not sure how, how much you guys heard. What was the last part, Michael? Do you I don't remember what like the last statement was. No. The last statement was, I am excited about Miniscript yes. uh, improving the interoperability of different wallet software. So. That's it, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Uh, one thing I, I, I do want to mention, I mean, you, you're saying that it's uh, you know early stage software, but um, something that's great about this, uh, you know, if people didn't pick up on this, I'll make it explicit, which this is merely an encoding and decoding um, System, you know, you're, you're, it's, a, it's just software that that encodes the script into mini script and back, and so because of that, it has nothing to do with any kind of consensus stuff. So you can go use it today. I mean, obviously, it's extremely you know beta software, if or alpha, whatever you would want to call it. Um, um, but this is stuff that you know can be rolled out, you know, with yeah. Uh, yeah. as as quickly as the software becomes uh, production ready. Yep, and, and it's actually even better than not being consensus. The cool thing is because it's designed so that common scripts can be decoded to Miniscript, even as it evolves and we add like new things and new features and like change things around, chances are, even if it completely changes, you will still be able to decode your same old script to whatever the new version of Miniscript is. Um, so you have like, it's actually very robust to changes in the underlying language. So as things settle out, um, like it's unlikely to actually break any users as we add things and rearrange things. Excellent. Uh, what are, what are, what, what's the next uh, bit of voodoo that you're going to be working on? Hmm. Um, so I have been spending all of my time lately um, doing Miniscript, which is so much fun, but it's not voodoo at all. It's just Bitcoin script. Um, I would like to get back to working on threshold signatures and adapter signatures. Um, so I talked a bit about this. These are the ways that you can do like multi-signatures and hash preimages and hide them in uh, transactions. Um, so that's something that at Blockstream, primarily Jonas Nick has been working on um, and Tim Ruffing. Um, I'd like to get back to helping those guys work on that. Um, and what we're doing there is making these kind of interactive signing protocols more robust to constrained signing environments. And one particular difficulty we have is how do we work with hardware wallets that have very low memory and which can't necessarily preserve state across multiple signing sessions? How do we prevent um, like doing replay attacks on them where we like convince them to give us a nonce and then we're like, oh, you gave me this nonce, please give me a signature. Um, and then five minutes later, you like tell it again, like, oh, you gave me this nonce, please give me a signature. And you're lying, you're providing the same nonce twice and like nonce uses the signatures. So we have a way um, so this is something that will probably be a research paper that we published this year, probably actually in 2020. We have a way to generate nonces deterministically and prove to, and have the hardware wallet prove, I guess, to the host, but then ultimately back to itself, that it generated this nonce deterministically. 
So now there is no longer any way that you can replay nonces on signatures on different messages um, because there's a zero knowledge proof tying the nonce derivation to the specific message. And this makes a lot of multi-signing protocols much more robust. It makes signing software more robust to things like VM forking, and it makes interaction with hardware wallets much more robust to things like unplug, replug, like glitching, or like memory, um, like various the various ways that you do replay attacks against hardware wallets. Um, so there's a lot of cool new crypto involved in doing that, coming up with an efficient zero knowledge proof that is small enough that it can be produced and verified by a hardware wallet. Um, and that also accomplishes this goal of being able to generate a uniformly round, random nonce um, deterministically without any of the kind of biases that would allow that to cause key loss. So, uh, so yeah, so I can't give a timeline on when you're going to hear more about this. It's probably like more than six months out because Taproot is, is so exciting and because Miniscript is so exciting. But that, that is the next thing on my horizon when, uh, when these projects become Great. Well, we'll definitely have to have you back on in uh, about six months plus yep. time. <laughs> Although you're always welcome anytime sooner than that as well. Awesome. I always enjoy doing this. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time to kind of educate and communicate because uh, it can be challenging sometimes to uh, read proposals and figure out, okay, what, how I do I as a human, as a node operator, uh, what should I be uh you know, looking at because I don't know math and uh, there's a lot of math involved. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yes, there is. <laughs> so, uh, where where can people go um, learn more about Miniscript? I mean, my recommendation would be like uh, reading Bitcoin Ops. You know, searching for Miniscript in that, um, yep. as well as uh, if you want, is there is there uh, like a bit? There is not a bit. I think we probably will propose one once we finalize it. Okay. Um, it's kind of one of those weird bits, like bit 32, where they're like no consensus requirement, like bit 49, which I think is just a word list, right? Um, right. I mean, one of those, those weird, it's just a bit because that's where you write it down. Um, and yeah, I think probably the Bitcoin Optech newsletter is a place to follow. If you really want to like watch it change, um, you can, I mean, you can show up on IRC and bug myself. Um, I'm not going to say bug Peter because he gets mad when I tell the public to do that, but you've come bug me. Um, I, I always love talking about this. Um, or also you can see there's kind of a demo that a compiler that Peter wrote from this like high level policy language into Miniscript. And you can find that on his website, bitcoin.sipa.be, it's like Belgium, slash Miniscript, slash Miniscript.html. If you go there, you can, you can play with this and see, ask you what Miniscript looks like, what the script fragments are and how they all fit together and stuff like that. Excellent. Yeah, but definitely like wait until we're like really, uh, probably it'll be in Bitcoin Optech when we have some more public ready stuff to show. I, I know they've, they've mentioned it already. So there is, there is some literature that people can look at. Cool. Um, you know, beyond that, uh, where can people find you online and get in oh. touch? So we're, we're on IRC. Yeah, exactly. So I am Andy Toshi on IRC. I am on a bunch of Bitcoin related channels on Freenode, including Pound Bitcoin, um, including Pound Pound H plus roadmap, um, including Pound Rust. I am also on irc.mozilla.org for as long as that lasts, which is like two weeks. Um, I'm on OFTC on the Rust channel and I'm on um, 
I think that's it, actually. I think those are all the servers that I'm on. Uh, yeah, so my nick is Andy Toshi. Um, that's probably the only way, really, to find me online in real time. You're welcome to shoot me an email, but I'm really bad at I had I have this memory from, I think, 2014 when I got on IRC, and my nick on IRC is still Pierre underscore Rochard. And I think you, you like, DM'd me on IRC, and you said, uh, people usually have like a, a nickname that's like shorter than their full name. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I think that was you, but this is like a, I, 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 I feel like I remember that. I don't know. See, one of my early memories of Andrew is uh, accosting him on the street and scaring him uh, <laughs> because I, I saw he was wearing a Blockstream shirt and he, I uh, was not used to people who would recognize a Blockstream shirt, especially in, you know, 2014. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so and that, yeah, so you can still do that. I live in Austin, Texas. If you're wandering around downtown Austin, Texas, yeah. you, may see, you may see me on the street. <laughs> wearing a Blockstream t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, um, although I'll stop if it, people <laughs> Starts <laughs> happening regularly during the next yeah. bull market. Just look yeah. for scales. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I guess there's also the, uh, it's uh, a pulsera on GitHub, correct? Yes, yeah, that is my, I mean, you can watch my development of the Rust Miniscript library there. Um, oh, man. And, okay, can I actually, I'll, I'll, can I fit in one more question? Um, why did you pick Rust? Why did I pick Rust? Rust is, oh, that's a big question, um, but I'll try to give a short <laughs> answer. Um, Rust is very fun to write code. And so when you're writing Rust code, it feels very explicit what you're doing. And it feels like there's not like stuff like conversions between integer types or casts or like duplicating data is very explicit. You have to like explicitly uh, promote integers to wider integers. You have to explicitly copy complicated data. You have to explicitly convert like a hex string into a script or into a byte string or whatever you might be doing or into JSON. Um, but you don't have to see like a whole bunch of types everywhere in front of you. Um, does type, type inference at the function level. Um, and its type system is extremely expressive. You have in, in the, uh, the programming language world, you talk about some types and product types. A sum type is something where you have a structure that might be like one of multiple alternatives. A product type is just like a struct where you have like a whole bunch of things uh, all packed together. And the result is a language that feels extremely expressive, but where and where you have all of the information in front of you when you're reading code and like none of the information you don't want in front of you. And there's even like some, some ways that it does similar things morally, like having every variable be constant, immutable by default. Um, if you're worried about what a variable is doing, you can just like glance up to where it's defined in like your function signature as an argument. You see, oh, the word mute, mutable is not there. It's not changing on me. I don't need to like go scan the rest of the function looking for where it changed or anything like that. Um, if I have an if statement, I know that what goes into that if is a Boolean. It's not a number, which is false if it's zero or one if it's anything else. Mm. It's like in C, so in C, so in C um, the literal zero is a valid instance of every single built-in type in C. It is a valid integer. It's actually a valid enum. Enums are not built in, but it's a valid um, pointer. It's a valid float. Um, it's just, it's absurd. Um, it's absolutely absurd. And try and um, software uses zero as a return code. So if you are trying to detect an error and you try to compare against zero, 
there is basically you spend all your time trying to convince the compiler to not let you silently convert every single other type to the number zero um, and have a signal bugs. And it's just it's very funny. And I feel like Rust um, like simultaneously will prevent those kind of annoying bugs where like um, it, it will make you enforce all of the invariants that you want to be enforced to be able to read your code and, and be confident in your understanding of it while still feeling super expressive. Like it's very easy to express ideas and you don't feel like you're always um, like writing hundreds of lines of code to build infrastructure that you feel like ought to be built in. So there's a learning curve. Like people, people talk about the compiler like haranguing them all the time. But I find that, that um, once you uh, get over that learning curve and kind of internalize the memory model that it use, uses, it feels like it's very easy to read code and it's very easy to reason about code. Um, and well, like that, really high that's a great sales pitch. So this, this podcast brought to you by Rust. And <laughs> go try out Rust, and that way you can help contribute to Miniscript. Exactly. Contributions are welcome. Um, I, love, I love to find people using libraries. So. Thanks for joining us today, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me. When it comes to leading up the chain, what do you do when your goals aren't seeming to align? Example, making money versus having an impact. Okay. This is the deal here. The goals have to align. Mm. They have to align. And furthermore, they will align. That is, now you might have to go pretty high up the chain to make this happen. Or you might have to dig pretty hard to make that happen. But this is a great example, right? The example is making money versus making an impact. And I'm going to tell you that those two actually align. How do they align? Well, let me explain. If your company makes more money, they will have a bigger impact, right? They will have a bigger impact. So let, let me let me break it down a little bit more. So, so if you wanna have a big impact on a client, right? And so what you do is you spend so much time and so much money with that client or with that customer, you're gonna realize that the company, if, you're, if you invest that much, to a client or to a customer, you invest that much time and that much money, your company's gonna go out of business. Mm-mm. Now how much impact are you having with that, <laughs> with that client? The answer is zero. Mm. Now, sometimes the opposite happens. And this is probably what, you, what the question is related to. For instance, if we, as a company, we start cutting corners on quality. We start cutting corners on customer service or whatever the case may be, we might make more money in the short term. Oh, like to save money yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, we save money. You, you know what? You. We were supposed to have 10 people answering phones. We're going to fire six of them. We're going right. to have four left. That means everyone's waiting on the phone. Right. So now we don't have good customer service. Now we're starting to write a Yelp review. I was on hold for 14 hours. I hate this company, right? This <laughs> happens. This is what happens. This is the example. So, so now up the chain of command. So before it was, look, we need 30 people in the call center to answer the phone. Mm-hmm. And that way everybody gets an answer within 30 seconds when they call in and when customer calls in. Okay, we're out of business in a month because we can't afford 30 people, so now we have no impact. Mm-hmm. The other end of the spectrum is we have three people in the call center right. responding to phone calls. We Everyone has to wait an hour. Now no one, everyone hates our company. We also have no impact. Yeah. So the, the, there, the goals have to be aligned at some case. And, but the, the thing is, it is a balancing act. It's, it's between expenditures for the cost to produce or the cost to provide service 
and you've got to keep that as low as possible so that so that money is made but you can't go so low that quality right. and customer service and follow-on business and customer relations you can't go so low that it gets destroyed and so you as a as a worker need to realize that your higher ups are trying to balance that and they're saying, hey, you can't dedicate this much time or you can't dedicate that much time. Echo, you need, you're spending too much time with each client. You need to get three more clients. Well, I can't give them the impact that I want. I can't give them the focus. Okay, can you handle one more client? Yeah, I could probably do that. Okay, we're finding the balance. That, mm-hmm. They know another good restaurant business, right? Mm-hmm. Restaurant business is a really easy, simple one to understand because the quality of the food that we get and the quality of the the, the chefs that we have, the the more it costs to buy the food, the good food, mm-hmm. and the higher quality chef and cook and help we have, the better the food's gonna be. Mm-hmm. Well, all that stuff costs more money. Mm-hmm. So you gotta find, the, if you, you have a restaurant where it's the best hamburger in the world, it's $84, mm-hmm. you're not gonna have a line at that place. You, but you, you have impact because you're having the best burger in yeah. America. Guess what? It's, you're not gonna be in business to have, your impact is gonna be zero. Mm-hmm. Other side of the spectrum, Salmonella poisoning because you're because <laughs> you're buying cheap stuff and you cut you know refrigeration costs and and that's guess what you're going out of business too yeah. so the goals are aligned at the end of the day because profit equals growth growth equals impact now you know are there ethical times where someone says hey we're screwing over company yeah absolutely look what just happened at Wells Fargo mm. right Wells Fargo had a had a a plague of that type of behavior. And it was rampant throughout the whole company. Guess where they're at now? They're hurting. They're hurting. They made a bunch of money in the short term. But guess what? Now they're not trusted. So they gotta do some recuperation. But that's a classic example. So someone from Wells Fargo might have asked this question yeah. and, you know, a year ago before the story broke and said, hey, Jocko, we're trying to do something positive here and the, the, the company, my goals aren't aligned with the company. And he would have been right, and he should have raised his hand. Because what he could have said was, hey, bosses, if we keep this up, we're gonna lose the trust and confidence of the public, and we're gonna be hurting. And he would have been correct. Yeah. So you gotta find that balance. But just remember that even though the goals might not seem aligned, they are aligned in the end. Mm-hmm. They need to be, they're not saying they always are. But if they're not aligned in the end, you're, gonna, you're probably gonna go out of business. Because mm. you just cut a swath of mayhem, you, you destroy your customers or either through high prices or by low service. One yeah. of those two things gonna happen if you don't find the, the dichotomy, the balance, not even dichotomy, it's the balance, you gotta find yeah. the balance.